This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Stephanie Fielding, a Baha'i of Mohegan descent who lives in Uncasville, Connecticut where she helps to restore the nearly lost language of the Mohegan people. Her story begins in Hawaii, where we learn that Stephanie's ancestry also includes Chinese, Hawaiian, African, and Irish heritage, along with her Native American ancestry. Once she became a Baha'i at 18 and got married, she and her husband Duane started their life together by going to Africa after a chilly start in North Dakota. Her life adventures take her to such places as Nigeria, Louisiana, Colorado, and then to her Native American roots in Uncasville, Connecticut. I started the interview by asking Stephanie to describe where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Hawaii. It was lovely. The diversity of people is just marvelous. I have a very diverse heritage. Both of my parents are from mixed marriages. My father's father was white. My mother's mother was white. My father's mother was um, Hawaiian and Chinese. And my mother's father was Indian and black. So if you look at it in oh. one way, I'm, I have five different races in me. <laughs> black, white, brown, yellow, and red. <laughs> well, I see the, the red hair has... The yeah, <laughs> it, it, that, the Irish genes are really dominant. <laughs> yeah, nobody believes me. I mean, in, in Louisiana, I'm actually uh, registered as black because you're in Louisiana, if you're a 32nd black, you're black. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in different places, I'm different things. You know, in Hawaii, yeah. I'm part Hawaiian, and here in in Uncasville, Connecticut, I'm a Native American, a Mohegan Indian. We trace our ancestry back to Uncas, who was the founder of the tribe. He was, I think, ten generations away from me. He had a dispute with his father-in-law, who who was the sachem for the Pequots. And he wanted to be more welcoming to the um, to the settlers, and and Sassicus said, "No, that's not the way to go. We need to protect our land, and and we need to do it by force." Mm-hmm. He and his followers were exiled on to the other side of the river, <laughs> and so that's why the the Mohegans are on this side of the Thames River, and the Pequots are on the other side of the Thames River. But I think there was, there may have been um, earlier historical Mohegan Pequot divisions that I'm just not aware of. I don't know the history of. Right. But that's where we trace our, our heritage back to Ancus, mm-hmm. our lineage back to Ancus. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of Mohegans look, well, not too many are redheads, but... <laughs> <laughs> European-looking? European-looking, yeah. And, that, and why is that? Well, they were more acceptable than the Pecos. Oh, so there was more mixing. There was, there, there was a, a real strong bond between Ancas and William Stanton, who was a leader of, of the settlers. You know, it was like acceptable to marry Mohegans, whereas it, it wasn't so acceptable to... Well, the Pequots were uh, outlawed. I mean, it was a, a Connecticut law for a while that you couldn't even have the name Pequot. Many were killed, many were sent, sent into slavery. Mm. And then those that survived were split up among the different tribes around here. So some became Mohegans, some became Narragansetts, and some became Nihantics. They've had a hard time. <laughs> And the Mohegans haven't had a, a, such a hard time, except for the fact that when you aren't challenged, you get assimilated. There is assimilation is something you have to watch out for if you want to maintain your cultural identity, and it hasn't been easy. So now we have the resources to gather together again. I mean, there are so many of, of us scattered around the the country because there weren't any economic opportunities here in southeastern Connecticut. We're back, and we're trying to find ourselves as as Mohegans, mm. culturally, with our language, with our political body or bodies. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. How is it that your family ended up in Hawaii? My father's mother was born and raised there, as was her, her line of folks. Okay. Um, one of her grandfathers came in from uh, from China, and one came from Ireland, and maybe that's why the Irish, because I got Irish from both sides, you know. Then my mother's father was in um, in the Navy, and he met my grandmother in California, mm-hmm. and he was from here in um, Uncasville. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, there's a, a road named for him. Oh, really? Down the piece, yes. What's the name of the road? Leo Terrace. Uh, he was um, a fairly well-known uh, football player in his time and mm. he played for the navy and he helped set up a lot of leagues um, in california that turned into pro leagues i mean if you went back and and did some research you'd probably find that that he was one of the promoters of and founders of of uh, professional football in the united states and not too many people know that <laughs> yeah but he and his cute little red-headed wife were not really acceptable in society. And so they... And why was that? Because of the interracial marriage. I did a series of photographs of her in black and white when I was um, uh, taking a college course at UConn. My teacher said, so who was the Indian woman that you took these pictures of? Oh, wow. (laughs) So, you know, it didn't occur to me because she's always been mom, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. So it it became more obvious when she was older. And is your mom still alive? No, she passed away last year. How long did you stay in Hawaii? Um, I got married when I was 18, and we left and went to North Dakota. I found out later that it's um, it's unconstitutional to take a Hawaiian girl to North Dakota. It's cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> I've never seen snow before. Oh, wow. I got to... North Dakota and Minnesota. Actually, it was Minnesota that I first moved to. And then the the big relief was when we moved to Fargo, North Dakota, you know, <laughs> because we were in this little tiny town. I mean, I had never seen anything except the ocean that was so flat. 
because land to me, you know, has has hills and mountains, and at least at that point it did. And you could you could stand at your house and watch your kids run away for three days. I mean, it's that flat. <laughs> so I stayed there, got there just in time for three of the worst winters on record. <laughs> I mean, they closed the the school that my husband was going to was um, had been around since the 1860s and it had never been closed because of weather and it was closed one of those years because yeah. of weather wow. and um, and on the days that it wasn't closed my husband had to leave the the car running all day just so that he could drive it home at night wow. <laughs> or at least go out and turn it on occasionally during the day it was just it was incredible it was just wow. incredible wow. it didn't get over zero zero for from December into February mm, um, mm, mm. That's so, pretty harsh. It was very harsh. How, how long did you have to endure that? <laughs> Three winters. Mm-hmm. After enduring the North Dakota winters, Stephanie and Duane went to Africa to help the Baha'i faith there. They ended up going to Nigeria. She describes how the national Baha'i body was actually responsible for a number of African countries. She also describes how this same body had to be replaced by a temporary committee due to the disruptions caused by the Biafran War. In the interview, she refers to the Baha'i International Body, which is referred to as the Universal House of Justice. Stephanie describes what it was like when they arrived in Nigeria. We got there a month before the Biafran War started and were there for the entire length of the war. And we got there the day after the first National Assembly of West Central Africa with its seat in Lagos, Nigeria, was elected. The National Assembly of West Central Africa had been there before, but it had been included the Cameroons the year before. Now the Cameroons had their own National Assembly, and West Central Africa included Nigeria, Dahomey, which is now called Benin, Togo, Ghana, and Niger. And three of those, uh, Benin, Togo, and, and Niger, all French-speaking countries in Ghana and Nigeria were English. Of course, Nigeria had 300 other languages as well. <laughs> <laughs> now, what did you and your husband do when you were in Nigeria? We were school teachers at the American International School. I taught art. It was a fluke. I had been like the assistant to the art teacher in high school. When they said, can you do this? I said, sure. I've done it before. I liked I liked to do art. The, the conflict in the country didn't allow a lot of the wives and children of essential workers that were in oil companies and things like that to return. And so the art teacher was stuck in Canada. But there were still children there that needed, needed schooling, so they asked if I could teach art. I said yes, and, and so I became the art teacher. And when she came back from Canada, she had an MFA. They said that they liked her better than me. Aww. And so... She got to teach second grade. <laughs> Aww, that's a shame. So what did you do when you left the school? For the next six months, I worked exclusively for the faith. Doing I was what? very shortly after the war broke out, five of the National Assembly members were from the area that seceded. They couldn't even have a quorum, you know. They couldn't. None of them could get to Lagos for a National Assembly meeting. And so the House of Justice dissolved the National Assembly and appointed an emergency administrative committee for the National Assembly. They appointed five of us. 
I was appointed the secretary. I was 21 years old, never been on an as- a local assembly. Wow. The oldest was 27. Oh, my gosh. He was from Togo. And the next three were Dwayne and two Nigerians. And they were all born on the exact same day, the, the same year. It was yeah. really quite amazing. They were all exactly the same age. Exactly the same age. And they, what was that age? They were 25. Wow, such young folks. Yeah, so we had... Running the affairs of the Baha'i faith. For five, for five countries. Wow. Sam was the only one, the, the fellow from Togo was the only one that could speak French of uh, the five of us. We did it. <laughs> it was yeah. it was quite a challenge, but yeah. um, kept things together. Um, mm-hmm. The House of Justice asked us to write a letter to Idi Amin and ask him to please not do anything to the, our house of worship. What was the religious makeup of the area that you were in? It was quite mixed. So we had Muslims, Christians, and animists. We wrote a series of articles in one of the national newspapers. And they were happy to have them. I think we Mm. wrote six articles. And people came out of the woodwork looking for us. As a matter of fact, this one fellow, we didn't put our address in until the, the last article and then we put in our mailing address, which was a P.O. box. He was so frustrated. He, he kept going around asking people, do you know what the Baha'i faith is? Do you know where, where the Baha'i faith is? And he finally found someone, and so he said, come with me. And he put him in a cab and, <laughs> oh, wow. and said, take me to where the Baha'i faith is. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a minister. Oh, really? His name was Ebenezer Obadei. He was in his 50s. He had been in the, uh, the Royal Air Force during the Second World War and was um, shot down in the English Channel. There were two of them that ended up in the English Channel alive, and then his partner was eaten by a shark in front of his eyes. Oh, wow. He prayed to God that if he saved him, he would work for him for the rest of his life. Not too long after that, he saw a buoy, he climbed up on the buoy, and was able to flag someone down. They picked him up and saved him. So when he got back to Nigeria, he became a minister. And when he saw our articles in the newspaper, he went, ah, that's what it is. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and so he became a Baha'i. He, we had a stash of books in our library, and they would you know, disappear, and we would refill them. Uh, he was the first person that actually came and bought books. <laughs> They were all for sale, but they, you know. <laughs> he went away with a, at least a half dozen books, prayer book, scripture, everything. And he said, you know, when I leave here, people are going to look at me and they're going to say I'm crazy. <laughs> because I'm sure they can see this in my face. <laughs> wow. So he was really moved then. Yes, very. And he became a Baha'i, and, um, and he was on the first National Assembly of Nigeria when it was elected. And when was that? 1970. And you were still in the uh, country at that time? Yes. Yeah, we were there from 1967 to 70. Mm-hmm. What caused you to leave Nigeria in 1970? Well, it was a fluke. We worked for the International American International School, and the principal of the school found out we were Baha'is. And he didn't want to be supporting Baha'i missionaries, as he put it. 
And so he canceled our contracts. They were in country contracts, and he could do that if he wanted. And one of our friends, who was another teacher, who was an atheist, said, you would want me to come back next year, wouldn't you? And he said, yes. And he said, well, I don't even believe in God, and they believe in God. They believe in Jesus. I mean, why don't you let them come back? And he went, oh, well, maybe you've got a point there. (laughs) Part of our contract was that they rented a house for us. And we had found a house in Surulari, which is an all-African part of the city. And they, they lost the lease on the house while we were gone on vacation. In the middle of our vacation, we get this letter that says, don't bother coming back, you don't have any place to stay because everyone's coming back to Niger- you know, back into Lagos and there's, there's no place, we can't find any place to, for you to live. So you stayed in the States? So we stayed in the <coughs> States and started our family. And where was that? We were in Hawaii. Oh, you went back to Hawaii? Went back to Hawaii. Yeah. How is it that you became a Baha'i in the first place? I was in high school. I heard some, some girls talking about the martyrdom of the Bob one afternoon, at you know, during lunchtime. And I went over, and one was explaining it all, and everyone else was wrapped. Did you even know who the Bob was? Had no idea. But this story was absolutely fascinating. And I could, I'd been christened a Catholic, baptized a Baptist, confirmed a Lutheran. <laughs> Almost became a Mormon. But when I found out about their theology, I became an atheist. I really? Said, you, from that, you disbelieved in God? I did. And how old were you when, when you made that decision? Sixteen. That's about the time you ran into the Baha'is, or you heard no, about I the... No, I was uh, 17 when 17. I heard about okay. the faith, and then I was 18 when I actually became Baha'i. Mm-hmm. So you heard this story about the, the martyrdom of the Bab, the predecessor to Baha'u'llah, and you were captured by this story. Yes. What happened next? My mother had a modeling agency. At that point in time, all of the beauty queens in Honolulu were all from her batch of models, including Miss Hawaii. And Miss Hawaii had to do her little things here and there, and my mom was her chaperone wherever she went. One night, I was with the two of them at a a contest, at another beauty contest. Beauty contests were big back then. <laughs> Believe me. It was um, for a, a radio station, you know, a Miss Capoy contest. It turns out that the owner of the tele- the radio station was Baha'i. When he took the three of us out for coffee afterwards, Miss Hawaii said, Oh, Finn, tell, uh, tell them about the faith. Oh, really? Yes. And so he did. It was so wonderful to hear that my neighbor, who was a Buddhist, wasn't going to go to hell. And that all of these people that believed in Muhammad weren't going to go to hell. Oh, my God, what a relief that was. I'd always believed, before I became an atheist, that that the God that I believed in was a loving and, and merciful and kind and just God. Such a God wouldn't make all these people go to hell. Mm-hmm. I got back Jesus that night, and God, and I also found Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. So you're back in Hawaii mm-hmm. after being in Nigeria. Yes. What did you do at that point in your life? Had babies. Had babies. Had babies. How many babies did you have? I had two babies then, and then another one in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I worked at a school while I was there. See, I'm doing all this without a degree, too. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I was teaching in Nigeria without a degree, and I was teaching in, in Hawaii at a private school without a degree as well. Dwayne got a master's in um, educational media, and then we had Corey, and then we went to the big island of Hawaii in um, Kau, which is the the largest physical jurisdiction in the islands, but it has the fewest number of people in it. Um, it also has a volcano in it, <laughs> and lots of sugarcane fields and macadamia nut tree orchards. Um, and we lived there for uh, a couple of years, and Dwayne was then the county librarian, and I was mummy. We had a little Baha'i community, so there there were people there, but they weren't organized. And so there was another couple that came in. He was a retired retired from the Army. Between the four of us, we organized our community. It was funny. One of the members, uh, new uh, believers, I looked at his name and I said, Kane my little red-headed grandmother, had married four times. And each time, it was a man of color. First one was Indian and, and black, and then all the other three were full-blooded Hawaiians. So I, I looked at the name, it's, that's the same name as Grandma. I wonder if, if this fellow's related. He was in the job corps at Volcano. So we went up and looked, and he was in the kitchen, and I saw him, and I said, that's Larry's brother. Larry being your father? Larry being my grandmother's husband. Okay. Who was younger than my mother. She had been a very beautiful woman. And so I went to the Job Corps head and and said, I'd like to speak with Alfred Canet. And he said, why? And I said, he's a relative of mine. And he looked at me and he said, he's pure Hawaiian. And I said, I know. And he said, what relationship is he to you? And I said, he's my great uncle. <laughs> and he said, he's 23. <laughs> I said, I know. And he said, how did this work? And I, I explained that he, he was like the youngest of 10 and, and Larry was the oldest of 10. I said, his older brother is married to my grandmother. That was how, you know, <laughs> the first person that we, we met. Small there. world. Yes. Then after Kau, we went to Pennsylvania, where Duane got a doctorate at Temple University. Mm-hmm. With the intention of going back to Nigeria, if possible. He actually got a job at the University of Ileife. It's in the western state. Lagos was, became a state of its own, and then there was the western state, which was just uh, north of it. So this was still Yoruba country, and so we were familiar with the Yoruba people and um, spoke a, a few words of Yoruba. Nowhere fluent, although we could fake the fluency really good. If you were stopped in traffic, you know, I knew enough words to talk to someone and then say, Wadabo! <laughs> <laughs> you know, hello, how are you? How's your mother? And then, uh, no, thank you, I don't want any. And then, goodbye, because that was the, when the cars would leave. <laughs> there again, I, I was mommy. Uh, I've had three kids then, because Leroy was born in um, Pennsylvania. So how old were your kids? When we hit the ground, was on Leroy's first birthday. And Bill was three, and Corey was six. The first time we were there... There was a war going around. 
uh, we got bombed. Um, you know, there were drunk men that pushed their machine guns in our faces. I mean, there were horrible things that went on. But, but when you go back with kids, mm. it's another story. Interesting. And the whole dynamic of it was it was pretty scary. Shortly after I got there, I went with a friend to visit the children in the hospital. And it was so bleak, and it was so dirty, and it was, and you never saw it, a nurse the entire time it was there. I said, what would happen if one of my children became ill? You know, I was just terrified. Mm. And one of them did. Oh, really? Actually, we all, all of us except Dwayne got the um, A. Victoria flu because it was going around then. And he got inoculated because he was going into Philadelphia. And we were living in the country, so we were not likely to get it unless he brought it home to us. So he got inoculated. We were fine. But when we got to Nigeria, we got it. And he didn't. So he took care of the four of us while we were all sick and throwing up and everything. Mm. I was still nursing Leroy. And so he had it the least because he was getting my antibodies as well as building his own. And then Billy wasn't too bad. But Corey, my daughter, threw up every day for two weeks. She got skinny. Mm. I was just heartsick. Finally, we got a different doctor, and she helped and got us the proper medication and, um, you know, and everything. And, and Corey finally started eating properly, and the first thing she wanted to eat was a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> they had good hot dogs there, too. Interesting. But I'm thinking, you know, God, she's going to eat hot dogs and throw them right. In. But she didn't. She got through. She ate a hot dog, and it was great. So we managed through that. Mm -hmm. But then Dwayne got sick. Actually, he was in a car accident. It was such a terrible car accident. There were, there were four people that were killed and four or three that were maimed for life. And he was the least affected in the group. Several of the people in his car, you know, said that he, he saved their lives. Oh, wow. But it was really hard on him, and he um, he became nervous, and it exacerbated another condition that he had that made that worse, and so he had an operation, but we didn't have any water in the house, and so mm. he couldn't heal from the operation, and so we had to go home. I mean, he was he was losing weight, and um, and he was looking bad, and he was having lots of pain and, and everything, so... Had we it, had it been our first time, he would have said, "I'm going to plant my bones here." But he had three little kids, by golly. Yeah. And so we went home. We were there for a year and several months. The second time. Mm -hmm. He was teaching at university, and I was doing um, freelance work for the university press. What were you doing? And artwork. And, and proofreading and, and being mummy. <laughs> so we went home and we went to, made a trip across the United States back to Hawaii because that's safe port. And so you came back from Africa to the East Coast and then traveled your way west? Or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long did that take you? Uh, well, we flew most of the way. So I see. But we, we take, made a stop in New Jersey, which is, you know, the Garden State. <laughs> <laughs> And then Minnesota, where 
his mother was. And then Washington, where a lot of our compatriots who were other teachers at the, the school were from. And then back to Hawaii. And you said that was the safest port. What do you What do you mean? Uh, well, that's where we both became Baha'is. That's where we didn't have to Oh, you mean the Hawaii being sort yeah. of home base. Yeah, home base. One of the bad things about Hawaii is that it's expensive to live there. And even with a doctorate, Dwayne couldn't find a job mm. that paid anything. So I had to get a job. And I found a job selling insurance, <laughs> which is just not me. Just not you're not a salesman? <laughs> no, I'm not. In order to maintain my sanity, kitty corner from the building that my office was in was another office building where the top hop station was found. Well, this DJ, uh, he was the morning DJ, and he was a nudist. <laughs> when he wasn't on the air, he was a nudist. Okay. <laughs> and so he... On the weekend, he went to the nudist colony, and he interviewed people, you know, playing, having a good time. I mean, this is radio. Who can tell that anybody's naked, right? Right. And so he plays it on the air during his his um, time only as a remote feed. Um, they have this all set up so that when he gets back to the, the station... The, the boss comes in and is absolutely furious that he's, you know, he's done this. And, you know, and so he says, um, is there any way I can make this? Well, I need, I need to know that your audience appreciated what you did, you know, at least. And so if 100 people can call you up and tell you before, before you go off the air that, that it was great, all right. Well, I called up. And I was the last one he talked to. I don't know if he quite made it to 100, but I used up a whole bunch of his time. But not as me, as Murgatroyd Hopper. (laughs) I'm 85 years old, and I didn't like a thing that you did. I had all those naked people trooping through my house. <laughs> and I was just incensed and you know and and told him that he was terrible and that he was immoral and and everything and he finally said is there any way I can make it up to you and I said how about lunch <laughs> <laughs> and so he he laughed and he hung up the phone thinking that it was someone in the office oh and he had no idea who it was. And it just happened that one of our good friends, who there was, at that point in time, there was a Baha'i at every radio station in the entire city of Honolulu. Working in, at some capacity. Most of them on the air. No way. Yeah. What's that all about? Well, uh, one of, or two of them had ran the Columbia School of Broadcasting. And so they trained the disc jockeys. One of the first list, uh, things that they had them do was to make an objective report on something they knew nothing about. And what would that be? Oh, well, I'm giving a fireside on the Baha'i faith. Why didn't you come and listen? <laughs> so lots of, lots of people that uh, went through the Columbia School of Broadcasting became Baha'is <laughs> and then became broadcasters in Honolulu. <laughs> Actually, one of the fellows that ran uh, Columbia School, of, two of the two that ran Columbia School of Broadcasting, worked at this this particular radio station. 
and I saw saw one of them a few nights later, and uh, I said, do you know what I did to Ron Wiley? And he said, what? And I told him, he went, that was you! That was you! He's been going crazy trying to figure out who that was! <laughs> That's great. So I became... Um, a regular a feature? Regular feature. On his show? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I, I was his adopted grandmother and, you know, beat him regularly with my umbrella and <laughs> for doing something naughty. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. And then I was other, I, I have other characters too that I, one was, um, my name is Indira Babashanda Ratan Karma Goldstein. <laughs> I'm from India. So what that, were some of your other characters? Um, well, I was um, Dicky Duck. <laughs> this is actually my generic animal voice. <laughs> so um, that that covered about you know Dicky Duck, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, and a few others. They were derivatives. Yes, <laughs> and it was also an avocado tree. <laughs> <laughs> and what does an avocado tree sound like? Oh, that same voice. Oh yeah. Yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun doing that and it maintained my sanity while I was selling insurance <laughs> and during that time um, I took my um, my little Leroy who was um, three then I took him one day when I went to do some uh, taping and Ron who was the same age as I was uh, but didn't he wasn't married didn't have any children he instantly fell in love with Leroy and Leroy's very gregarious so he's he's picked him up Put him on the console, stuck a microphone in in his face, and interviewed him. Oh wow! And so Leroy also became a, a permanent oh. part of his program. Oh, that's great! Yeah, that's it was great. Funny archive tape of of that. I found a piece of tape the other day. I don't know where I put it since yeah. then, but it, it was another one of my um, uh, characters, um, Mal Rizzo who was running for mayor of Honolulu. And how did she sound? Uh, she was kind of May Westy, you know, and she's going to take care of the country, I mean, the, the city, and, you know, she was going to legalize everything that was illegal. <laughs> and then we tax it. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't really get into her right now. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. So how long did you sell insurance and well, do radio characters? <laughs> I, I don't think I sold insurance that much longer. Um, uh, I'm assuming the radio gig wasn't very lucrative. No, it wasn't. You know, they paid me in... <laughs> free lunches. <laughs> free lunches and chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> but it, it was a nice thing. You know, I didn't have to pay for counseling. <laughs> Therapy. <laughs> therapy is pretty expensive. Yeah, so. it was great therapy. Yeah, it was great therapy. I worked for several running magazines. I took... Uh, Again, Illustrator... Uh, well, no, not the big ones. The little ones that happened out... Well, was it several? Maybe it was just one. It just seemed like several. Mm. Uh, Run in the Sun, and then it seemed like there was another one. I can't remember. I worked with a lot of um, you know running clubs and took pictures of marathons and there I mean Hawaii was the place to to be if you were a runner because it was you know always running season so you were a professional photographer as professional photographer and writer yeah so you contributed articles as well yes and then I also did um, 
writing for um, advertising agencies and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And this was all in Hawaii? All in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Louisiana. And what would take you to Louisiana? A job for Dwayne? Yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, where did he go? He was at um, LSU. Okay. And I had to start all over again now. When we got there, I I realized very quickly that one-third of of Baton Rouge's population was African-American. And it wasn't reflected in the Baha'i community. And I wanted to do something to to change that. As I was looking for a job, I sat down one day. I, I, I had been to several places, and they all, you know, wanted me, but the economy there was not very good. Their desires to have me on their staff were, they couldn't come up with the positions to put me in. I was sort of, you know, twiddling my thumbs and being really anxious about it. And so um, I decided what I needed to do was to, oh, actually, I, I said I needed to go and pray. So I sat down in a park and I prayed. What came to me was that I needed to make an ad for myself and then deliver it to the five or six different companies that you know, were about to lose me <laughs> to someone else. <laughs> I found um, a telephone book, went to the Yellow Pages, and went to the the people with the smallest ad in the Yellow Pages. <laughs> it turned out to be two women there. One was black and one was white, which was kind of unusual in, in um, Baton Rouge. And I asked them if, you know, they would set this type for me, and, and one was set the type. I was at, talking to the other one. I said, do you know of anybody that, you know, could use a writer on, on staff. And she said, well, if you don't mind working for a black newspaper. Oh, no, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Just answered my prayers. <laughs> I was um, invited to to write, be a staff writer for the the Baton Rouge Examiner. The publisher and the editor had a fight the first week I was there. And then the next month, I was the editor. No way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Louisiana has the best po- politicians you can money can buy, really. They're so corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> All of them are what? <laughs> I was given the assignment of writing about the gubernatorial race. The governors there are only allowed two terms. Then they have to take a term off, and then they can run again if they want. So we had a former and you know two, two incumbents that were running against each other. And so I, I wrote about them, and, mm-hmm. and everyone was, was thrilled with my absolute bipartisan, I mean, you know, yeah. nonpartisan, objective, objective yeah. commentary. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, had, I even had a political advisor call up and say that, that he'd never read such a, an unbiased piece on, on political piece before. It was refreshing to them. Yeah. That's great. Unfortunately, the young man that, that ran the, the examiner, although he was smart as a whip, he also wasn't very ethical. Mm. And so everything has sort of collapsed around, around our ears. Financially. Yeah. So I, I tried to start a magazine. My plans didn't work out properly. I, it wasn't capitalized properly, and I got too many people involved in it and that wanted to do other things and you know it was more important for them to have a sign on the wall than for someone and telephones inside so we could sell ads i mean it was just didn't make any sense yeah so anyhow that didn't work either 
and so I ended up working as a associate editor at the um, Baton Rouge magazine, the City magazine. And I did a lot of integration there. I mean, you know, it was a white magazine. They did have, you know, one of the star basketball players on the front cover, and people just flipped out when that happened. Flipped out in a... In a bad way. Really? I mean, people canceled subscriptions and things. What year was this? This was in the 80s. Really? Yeah. Louisiana was, was pretty far behind... I could tell you lots of stories. <laughs> <laughs> With the Baton Rouge Examiner, you know, we did a lot of integrative sort, sorts of things. We got the two, well, there was no black Chamber of Commerce, but we got the Chamber of Commerce to invite uh, um, the black entrepreneurs that we did, that we focused on in one of our issues to their chamber meeting and, you know, and that sort of loosened things up and you know and got some integration going in that in the business areas so that was pretty cool and that's good so we did we did a lot of good stuff there excellent for the 13 months that it was alive because <laughs> <laughs> I, I when i got there it had just started mm. i think i think they had had one issue out and it folded it folded it after 13 months I was freelancing for Baton Rouge Business Report, Baton Rouge Magazine, while I was trying to get the, mag, um, the, bat, the Pulse of Baton Rouge up and running. The Pulse of Baton Rouge, I think we only had three issues that actually came out. I mean, people loved it, but it wasn't making any money. Right. So I went and worked for Baton Rouge Magazine full-time. That was fun, and I used... There were times when I would write nearly the entire magazine, my boss told me when she saw this starting to happen, she said, you can only have one byline in the magazine. And so I would pick out my favorite story that I wrote, and that would be Stephanie Fielding, and then all of the rest were, were members of my family. <laughs> Actually, I made up pseudonyms that were just, you know, combinations of, of my mother's name and my father's name and, you know, and pull up here and there. And, and then, of course, there was... The beauty editor was Nan- uh, Fanny Purdy. <laughs> <laughs> and Indira even wrote a couple of articles. <laughs> she did prognostication. Of course, she's a little bit of a procrastinator when it comes to prognostication. But anyway, it was very good. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. And then we moved to Colorado. What were the reasons for leaving Louisiana? Well, when when Dwayne went to Louisiana, he wrote to his two major advisors at Temple University and asked them to write letters of recommendation for him. And they wrote these rave letters of recommendation, I mean, which he, he deserved. But at the same time, they wrote rave recommendations for themselves, and they came as a group. So the three of them ended up at LSU it was a man and a woman they weren't married but the man had his family and then Mina Ruth was like an aunt to the family then Bill got a position as dean of the school of education at University of Colorado Denver and he asked Dwayne to come and be his associate dean and so he did and so we moved to Denver now how old were the kids at this point Corey had just started in high school, so she was in the ninth grade. 
Mm-hmm. And Bill was in the sixth grade, so he was in middle school, and Leroy was in fourth grade in elementary school. Mm-hmm. But when we got there, we found that, that Bill was having trouble coping. He was our sensitive child. And when we talked to the counselor, he said, you know, he was, he was failing things. He has 150 IQ. He shouldn't be failing things. Oh, wow. The counselor said, you know, we started talking. He said, How, where have you been living? And we started naming the places. And he said, you know, every time you move, a ma- make a ma- major move like that, it's like a death in the family to a child, especially if, you know, one's so sensitive. And so I turned to Dwayne and said, we're not moving until these kids are out of high school. And he said, okay. <laughs> so all of my kids are still in Colorado. Ah, okay. So how, how long did you live in Colorado? Twelve years, I think. Well, yeah. And so what did, you, what did you find yourself doing in Colorado? I had to start all over again. So I did a f- couple of freelance articles for magazines and... And then I ended up working at the Denver Public Schools in the statistic, writing articles for uh, analysis for evaluations and statistics and stuff like that that I had no business doing. And then I went over to the public information office and worked there. And then I got a job at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory as an artist. So from writing to art. And, uh, Did you try to get into the magazine business like you had in Louisiana? Yeah, I tried. I didn't have the network, and there was no way that I was going to get the the funding because just at that point you'd need probably a quarter of a million dollars for proper funding, you know, mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to have it capitalized so that it could it could run for a year and get the subscriptions up and you know all the stuff that right. needed to be done. Mm. And there was no way that I was going to get that much money, especially not knowing anyone in town. Mm-hmm. So just getting into the business as a editor or a writer was not so easy in right. Denver. Right. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that the the quality of education of, of the people in, in Colorado mm-hmm. is much higher than the quality of education of people in Louisiana. So mm-hmm. in in Denver, in order to get a job writing a newsletter, you had to have a college degree, and I didn't. Yeah. So, but you didn't have to have a degree to be an artist. During my freelance time, I learned one of the um, software packages, publishing software packages, and just taught it to myself and and became fairly proficient at it, proficient enough so that I had a few pieces of of work that I could take and say, you know, this is what I've done. And so they accepted me as a publication designer at at NREL. So mm-hmm. I did publication design there and, you know, uh, lots of other artistic sorts of things. It was it was fun. Mm-hmm. We had a, a good crew. There was, I think there were about a dozen people that were working in the graphics department while I was there. Mm-hmm. So it was a big group. I mean, it was not me and one other guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You left Denver? I did. Mm-hmm. My dad called. My My parents had been in Hawaii for over 50 years together. And then when the tribe reconstituted here and they built the casino and they, you know, they were sort of calling the people back, my parents came for a visit and they liked it and there was a lot of, you know, warmth shown to them. 
and so they decided to move here and and they were one of the the fellows that was so kind to them red moon uh, he he encouraged them to sign up because he said we're going to have an elder housing unit and it's going to be wonderful and you know it's going to be built in a year <laughs> it wasn't built in a year but mm. it, you know but it was the the promise was was good enough for them to um to come here and mm-hmm. and they bought a house in Uncasville and shortly after they arrived my dad called and said something's wrong with your mom and mm. I don't think I can handle this by myself would you please come so we did while I was here the the they had started a language program they had a group called Big Head Interactive where they came and took videotapes of people speaking Mohegan. Of course, the people didn't speak Mohegan, but they would memorize, you know, a few phrases and, you know, they put it in a way so that it was like a conversation. Um, And they were going to turn these videotapes into interactive CDs. And it was a grand idea and everything, but it ended up not being cost effective. So it came to a screeching halt. And in the meantime, they had asked me if I would please be a big headed asked me if I would be the the person to take over for the lang- uh, the language and I said well I'd love to but you're not the people that should be asking me this this should be the the council of elders that should be asking me this and um after being in school a year the chairman of the council of elders asked me if I would study linguistics and I said I would now I had been getting all A's all A's and I started taking linguistics. That was the hardest thing I could have taken. But I stuck with it. I got my degree, my four-year degree in two years. In November of 2006, the Council of Elders released a Mohegan Dictionary that I compiled and uh, wrote the grammar for. The dictionary only has 813 words in it. But I have since found another 400 words... And so I could easily expand it, you know, nearly doubling its size. It's been fascinating. It's been wonderful. I've I've been able to share a lot of... I've found things like there's a word in there that means that we have it meaning salute or greet. But when I did further research on on it, it also means embrace. Oh. I was looking for the word embrace, and then I found that, that, oh, this is the same word. And then as I read farther... It meant what I got from it was that the way that we greeted each other was with an embrace in the coming and in the going. Mm. That's like, how nice, that you know? Nice. And how yeah. nice that we can act- I can actually share that with the tribe, you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe that will become a way that we will embrace. I mean, we will greet each other is through an embrace. I mean, I do with the women's group that we've gotten together. Mm-hmm. And the group that drums also embraces um, in the coming and going. So mm-hmm. that that's very sweet. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not something that's unknown here. But I think some people are wondering whether it's traditional or not. But it is. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. <laughs> what uses will the dictionary have? Some of us would like to get to a point where people that, uh, uh, you know, Mohegan kids can speak it. Mm-hmm. What that would entail would be an immersion school where you would bring the kids when they're three or four years old and start them. First, you'd have to get, you know, a half dozen or a dozen adults that spoke the language fluently. 
and that those would have to be younger people than me because at 61, there's no way that I'm ever going to be fluent in the language. I mean, your brain gets spongy and, you know, stuff. And when you lay down at night, you know, all of what you learned in the daytime leaks out on the pillow at night. I mean, I'm trying real hard and I'm getting better. Mm -hmm. I realize that I'm not going to be the one, one of those teachers. We've got to have younger people that are, are dedicated, that really want to see the language progress, mm-hmm. that are willing to spend their lives teaching children how to, how to speak Mohegan and also mm-hmm. teaching them other things in, in their language. I mean, how to read in it and how to, how to do math and how to relate to the earth and everything. So are there schools in, uh, run by the Mohegans? No. no, this is my dream. I have all the plans. I have the curriculum. I have everything ready to go. It's just a matter of getting enough support and people saying, yeah, we need to have this. Because mm-hmm. so far, that support hasn't been there. It's, it's too daunting as far as um, the cost would go. But the thing is, the Pequots have the same language we do. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, a little different here and there, yeah. depending on who's it. could almost it. fall as like a dialect, maybe. Yeah. So we could get together and share the costs. And there's been some excitement about that. We have a 400-year-old rivalry that hasn't gone away. Still there. It's still there. If it were just in our slot revenues, that would be fine, but it seems to go beyond that. I'm not sure what it's going to take for that to actually come together. I know that people want to pray in the language. I've been translating prayers as part of my daily ritual, especially when I was doing a lot of going to the, the burial grounds and doing my prayers there, I, I would say, in the name of God, the most pure, the most pure. I had that translated into Mohegan. And now that is said at the beginning of all prayers, and when a smudge is offered, you know, a smudge is a purifying process. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've contributed at least something there. We have a wonderful fellow that, that runs our sweats and takes care of our sober house, and he has, he's very spiritual. I, I wouldn't say it's, it's a, a spiritual community, but there are definitely spiritual elements in the community. And is there any, any of that being shared between the two tribes? There's a fellow that is um, our cultural coordinator. He works in our cultural department who is actually a Colombian Indian who was adopted by a Jewish family here in Connecticut. He's so longing for, you know, that cultural connection that he went to the university and worked in Native American studies and and then he got a job with our tribe. And he's lovely. And then after this, he married a Pequot woman. And they've had two children now. He knows the language the best. And so he says prayers in Mohegan, and I've helped in that a bit. And he speaks to his children on occasion, you know, like he'll say, put that down or something like that in Mohegan. He's found that sometimes his daughter understands the Mohegan first before the English, which is cool. So we do have that connection there in Jay. He's mm. not an official part of our tribe, but he certainly loves us and, and works hard for us. Well, Stephanie, thank you very much for sharing your story. Oh, my pleasure. I asked Stephanie to recite a Baha'i prayer that she translated into Mohegan. Immeasurably exalted art thou, O God. 
Pukwasanan wuchi matamhuang otash ayakwapi. Protect us from what lieth in front of us. Tawatak nahakononak, and behind us. Wawapi nakonakonanak, above our heads. Natanakan, on our right. Numiachan, on our left. Akwanositanonashan, below our feet. Tawami onkotak wasash. Yochaniak matamhuang and every other side to which we are exposed. Mochi ki kuachono wami nanoio sukayan mochiming. Verily thy protection over all things is unfailing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephanie Fielding, a Baha'i of Mohegan descent who lives in Uncasville, Connecticut, where she helps to restore the nearly lost language of the Mohegan people. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.